Episode 22, The Life of Jesus the Messiah. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and try to see how those events shaped our modern world. This is Episode 22, The Life of Jesus the Messiah. There's really no debate that Jesus was one of the most important people in all of history. But there are two ways to look at that. On the one hand, his life, death, and resurrection definitely started one of the world's largest and most influential religions. Even those who do not claim to be Jesus' followers are aware of that. But the other way to look at his life makes him even more significant. Because what he claimed, and what his earliest followers claimed, was that his life, death, and especially his resurrection meant that he was the Son of God and that he had somehow opened the doors of heaven for all of us, not just the Jews, but also all the nations, so that we could be free from both darkness, sin, and death. If that claim is true, then yes, it's incredibly significant, much more so than just starting a big religious institution. So, What did happen? What was the story of his life, and how did it make such a radical change in his ragtag group of followers? Let's take a look at what the Bible says about Jesus' life and what his earliest followers said about him. The fact that the Bible is recorded within the lifetimes of his followers makes it a very, very accurate record by historical standards of what must have happened, right? So it's a very, very accurate historical record and very trustworthy in that sense. Last episode, we talked a bit about the people who wrote the accounts of Jesus' life that we now call the Gospels, the Gospel of Luke or Matthew, for example. All of the authors of these accounts of Jesus' life were trying to make a specific point to their specific audiences. And one of the consistent points that they all make is that God was opening up the way to heaven and that Jesus came to make this possible. They're also making the point that this kingdom of heaven is not an earthly kingdom like David's kingdom or the Roman Empire. It's a different type of kingdom. It does seem to have an earthly component, but it's also very much about a future kingdom too. But many people, even people who are lifelong churchgoers, have the impression that Jesus was just a good teacher or or good example. This isn't the point that the Gospels make And it isn't the point that Jesus' earliest followers make in their accounts of themselves. Those accounts, Acts, and the letters that are written to the churches like Romans, Ephesians, 1 Peter, 1 John, etc., those in the Gospels, paint the picture that Jesus was much more than that. They make the point that he was in some way the very incarnation of God on earth. So, from a sort of historical perspective and from the perspective of why this matters today, Let's take a look at what the Bible does say about Jesus. So, everyone probably knows that the summary of Jesus' life, right? He was born in Bethlehem to Mary and Joseph, born in a stable because there was no room in the inn. He grew up, then at about 30 years of age, he was baptized by John the Baptizer. He went into a public ministry in which he wanders around Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, teaching and performing miracles. Jesus was handed over to the Jewish authorities who accused him of blasphemy, and they handed him over to the Romans to be crucified. The Romans beat him, and they crucified him. He was then laid in a tomb and left there over the Passover weekend. 
Then he rose from the dead and appeared several times to his disciples. Now, most of that is common knowledge even to people who do not consider themselves to be believers or followers of Jesus, not Christians, right? But what does the Bible say about why he came and what his life meant? Why is his life so significant even today? Jesus said a lot of things about himself and his mission, and many of them are actually kind of vague, but he describes himself as the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Good Shepherd, and several other titles are given to him by himself and other authors of the New Testament. But there are a couple of times where Jesus seems to explain his mission in his own words. I mentioned one last episode when he quotes the um, prophecy from Isaiah about coming to declare the favorable year of the Lord. And there's another one in Luke 19. In the context of having dinner with a tax collector named Zacchaeus, Jesus says of himself, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And then in Matthew 20, in the context of two of his disciples asking him who's going to be the greatest one in the new kingdom, Jesus says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, that's the nations of the world, lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. And then he gives this mission statement here. He says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Again, if you're part of the church, you may have heard these words before, and you might miss the context due to familiarity. But what Jesus seems to be saying in both of these passages is that people are expecting him to be a typical worldly ruler. And he's saying, no, 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 no. That's not my purpose. I've come for something else. Now, maybe we lose sight again due to familiarity of what Jesus is really saying here. He's saying that the reason he came was not to set up a religion or an earthly kingdom. It was to die and to pay some kind of ransom for the lost people of the world, like me. This is a really unique claim when you compare it to the other religious leaders and other religions of the world. Other religions claim to explain the truth of the world or to claim to have a revelation from God about how to live. Jesus, and the early church as well, had a different message. They said that Jesus' life and death had opened the way to God for all of the lost people. So let's look at the story of his life. As we said in the last episode, Jesus was born during the reign of Caesar Augustus, though Augustus died when Jesus was probably about 16, and Tiberius becomes the emperor at that point. Tiberius Caesar reigns through the rest of Jesus' life. Back when Jesus was born, Herod the Great was still the client king ruling over Judea on behalf of the Roman Empire. It was to this Herod that the Magi from the east came. The Magi were probably astronomers from Parthia, outside the Roman Empire. So Herod was suspicious of them, both because they were Parthians, but also because they came and asked, where's this newly born king of the Jews? That was technically Herod's title, and he didn't want anyone else messing with his little dynasty. The Romans allowed the Jews to sort of run their own government, including Herod, though the Jewish leaders all knew that it was really Rome that was in control. The Jewish version of a senate was called the Sanhedrin, and it was made up of the wealthy elite and the religious leaders. There were two main parties in the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. 
The Pharisees were the religious leaders, and they were trying to follow a strict adherence to the law of Moses. The Sadducees were the Hellenized Jews who had adopted more of the Greek practices and philosophy of the Seleucids, that were the Greek rulers who had followed Alexander the Great. The Pharisees saw the Sadducees as sellouts, and they wanted to develop a more pure Jewish government that was based on the law and the Talmud, and the Pharisees really, most of them, wanted to throw the Romans out. The Sadducees were more prone to cooperate with the Romans to keep the peace, and because it made them a lot of money, um, more so than the Pharisees. The Pharisees wanted to return to Jewish rule. The average people of Judea and Galilee were mostly Jews, with some Greeks and people from other lands, and they practiced their Jewish religion as best they could. They would have had a service on Sabbath, usually in a synagogue if their town had one. A synagogue was a building especially built to have a Sabbath gathering. The teacher of the synagogue, who was usually sort of a low-level Pharisee, was called a rabbi, and they would usually read from some of the scrolls of the Old Testament. And it was unusual if one of the small synagogues in a village had more than just a couple of scrolls. The average Jewish person also tried to observe the Jewish feasts and holidays, and they would try to get to Jerusalem when they could for the feasts or festivals that required them to be there. Jesus' parents, that is Mary and Joseph, were very typical Jewish peasants. Very, very poor peasants, probably. Actually, the Bible makes it pretty clear that Joseph was not actually Jesus' father. In several places, it makes the point that Mary was made pregnant by the Spirit of God directly before she and Joseph had gotten married. So Joseph wasn't technically Jesus' father, although he becomes his father, right? He grows up in Joseph's family. Now, the idea that someone became pregnant from a god is not a unique story in the ancient world. Many ancient heroes supposedly had divine parents, including Hercules, Achilles, Aeneas, Jason, Perseus, and others. But Jesus' story is still pretty unique, partly because he's not born to some princess or notable character. He's born to a young and poor peasant girl. Although, to be clear, the Bible does point out that both Mary and Joseph are descendants of King David. At the time, Joseph and Mary were both poor peasants, living in a very small town called Nazareth, which is in Galilee. It had the reputation, even in its day, of being a tiny, out-of-the-way place. In response to a Roman census that's recorded in Luke, Mary and Joseph travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is a separate town. It's kind of near Jerusalem, but it's the town that's associated with King David. So that Joseph could be registered there, which apparently has to do something with Joseph's lineage being a descendant of David. This must have been a tough journey for them because Mary was probably already eight months pregnant when they went. The Bible doesn't say how long they were in Bethlehem, but it doesn't seem like it was a very long time because they were staying in a stable since there wasn't room in the inn. Now, this might have also had to do with their relative poverty. Now, today, we have these sort of romanticized visions of the stable because of the pristine nativity scenes that we see every Christmas. But if you've ever been on a real farm, you know that the pens that the animals live in are not clean. It's closer to being born in a dumpster. That's the modern suburban equivalent. When Jesus was born, Mary wrapped him up in some old cloths, and she laid him in a feeding trough. It's the kind of rough wooden thing that held hay for the sheep or the horses. It gets called a manger, and we romanticize that a bit as well. He was laid in a manger. 
but it was probably a very sloppy old feeding trough. It's a pretty humble birth. They were away from home and family in an animal shed, and Jesus was laid in a feeding trough. Now, there's an interesting contrast here. This is the very peak of Roman power and prestige under Augustus. And at that time, the Messiah was born in a faraway corner, the most remote corner of the Roman Empire. And the Messiah was born in the humblest circumstances imaginable. And I find this part to be pretty cool. The announcement of his birth wasn't made to Caesar, nor to anyone in power. Jesus' birth, according to the Bible, was announced to the lowest of the low. The announcement of his birth was made to shepherds in the hills near Bethlehem. Angels appeared, and the announcement of perhaps the most important birth in all of human history was made to the poorest of the poor, some ragged, dirty, probably smelly shepherds. And the angels told them where to look for this baby. They said, go look for him in a manger, which must have been a source of wonder to the shepherds because they're the kind of people who would know just how grungy a manger actually was. Anyway, they go, they find him, and they worship. Eight days later, Jesus is presented at the temple in Jerusalem where Joseph offered up a sacrifice for his firstborn according to the law, according to the Bible. And after that, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus leave for Egypt to hide because King Herod has made a decree that all the male children two years and under in the region of Bethlehem will be killed because Herod's nervous about the Magi. He thinks they're spies, and he thinks they're some sort of conspiracy because they're looking for the king of the Jews. Anyway, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus return a few years later when Herod has died. Very little is known of Jesus's early life other than a story of him visiting Jerusalem when he was about 12 years old. That's in Luke chapter 2. Jesus and his family lived in Nazareth, which is outside of Judea. It's up in Galilee. It's on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And like I said, it's a pretty remote little town. Around the age of 30, and see, that's a big gap, right? We know what's going on when he's like 12, and now suddenly we've jumped to when he's 30. Anyway, around the age of 30, according to Luke, Jesus goes to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptizer. At this point, God's Spirit descends on Jesus, and a voice says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Several of the Gospels make a point about this incident. It's an interesting moment because somehow, in some way, God is with Jesus in a new way that he wasn't before because apparently God's Spirit wasn't on him before the baptism. So now Jesus has got God's Spirit with him in some new way. Anyway, after this, Jesus begins traveling around Galilee and Judea and occasionally venturing into Samaria and possibly Syria too, teaching and healing and gathering followers. His followers included the 12 disciples, plus other followers as well, and they seemed to live with him on an ongoing basis, just living with him, following him, and somehow helping him do his work. Honestly, what the disciples contribute to the effort is mostly unbelief and misunderstanding, but they do seem to stay with him, which allows them to see a lot of things that he does and eventually record them. It's interesting that a lot of the mistakes that the disciples made were recorded in the Gospels. Honestly, the disciples come off as kind of bumblers, not great leaders who will eventually change the entire Roman world. Going back to what we talked about last episode, right? The Gospels were written to be historically accurate, not written to glorify the great deeds of the disciples. 
but they eventually do, the disciples, seem to come to understand who Jesus is, and they do end up being very important in the years after Jesus' death. More on that in our next episode. In addition to his followers, though, Jesus also made some enemies. Jesus' words were usually powerful, and they show the kindness and love of God, except when he's talking about the Pharisees and the scribes. He calls them all sorts of bad things, and he constantly uses them as a bad example of how not to follow God. He criticized their empty legalism repeatedly, and they rather hated him for it. They started making plans to get rid of him early, and they were often trying to trick him into saying something that would allow them to get him arrested. Here's a good example from Luke chapter 20. So they, the scribes and chief priests, watched him, and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement, so that they could deliver him to the rule and authority of the governor. That's Pilate. At one point they asked, Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he detected their trickery, and he said to them, Show me a denarius. Now that's a Roman coin, right? Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So, they weren't able to trick him and catch him in something right then. By the way, at this point, we're now talking about Tiberius Caesar, who had replaced Augustus in AD 14. After Jesus had wandered around and taught and healed and heckled the Pharisees for three years, the Pharisees finally had him arrested. The Sanhedrin had its sort of own police force, a group of soldiers who weren't the Roman soldiers, and the Sanhedrin police force were responsible for keeping peace in Jerusalem and particularly around the temple. Jesus had been teaching in the temple before Passover, and then he had the Passover meal in the upper room of someone's house in Jerusalem with his disciples. Then he and the disciples walked out of Jerusalem, through Jerusalem, to the Mount of Olives. Now the route out of Jerusalem to the Mount takes you right past the temple. So perhaps the temple police saw him on the way. In any case, one of Jesus' disciples, Judas, leads the police to Jesus at the olive tree garden on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus is arrested. He's brought back to the Sanhedrin, and they accuse him of blasphemy for saying that he was the Son of God. Jesus doesn't deny it. The Sanhedrin then send him to Pilate, the Roman procurator who had taken over ruling Judea because Herod's son Archelaus was a horrible ruler. Pilate questions Jesus, and then he has him sent to Herod Antipas, which is Herod's other son, who is also in Jerusalem too, probably for the Passover. Herod Jr. also questions Jesus, but then he has him sent back to Pilate. In order to placate the Jewish leaders who had roused up a crowd, Pilate has Jesus flogged and then orders him to be crucified. Jesus was led out of town in the morning along with two other criminals. They were taken to a hill just outside of town near a main road and crucified. That's what the Romans did. They'd put the crucifixion victims right on the main road where everybody could see them as examples. Pilate had an inscription placed above Jesus' head on the cross, which said, This is the King of the Jews. Jesus was crucified on the day before the Passover celebration. His body was taken down from the cross, and he was placed in a tomb which was sealed and guarded by the guards of the chief priests. 
The disciples and Jesus' women followers did not finish all the burial preparations before the beginning of the Sabbath and the Passover, so they went back to Jerusalem. Early in the morning, on the day after Sabbath, some of the women went out to the tomb to complete the burial preparations, but they couldn't finish them because the body was not there. The four Gospels all tell slightly different stories here in this moment, but they all agree on this very important fact that Jesus was not there. And they say, all of them unanimously, that Jesus was risen from the dead. Several of these reports include people seeing angels, and one of the angels says to the people looking for Jesus' body, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. It's the central and most important point of the story and of all of history, that the Messiah, who was delivered by the Jewish leaders to the Romans, then crucified and killed, had actually risen from the dead. As Jesus himself said, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. After he rose from the dead, he appeared to his disciples multiple times over the course of 40 days, and then he was taken up into heaven. So, he was risen from the dead. He had a new body, a different body, a resurrected body, and he appeared to his followers several times, and they didn't know what to make of it. But the idea that he rose from the dead is central to the ideas of Christianity. The resurrection of Jesus was the central claim of the early church. Not that he was some great teacher or leader or anything. They claimed that his resurrection showed that he really was the Jewish Messiah and that he had called everyone to repent and truly turn to God. It's a kind of preposterous, amazing claim, actually, that this penniless peasant from Nazareth was the Messiah and that the kingdom that he had started was actually the kingdom of heaven, and that it was open to anyone. And that because of his life and death, and because his death had been some kind of ransom, this kingdom was, and now is, open to anyone, even non-Jews, who want to come into it. If it's true, it really is the central fact of human existence. By the way, I think it's true, if you hadn't already figured that out for yourself, if Jesus really was who he said he was and who his earliest followers said he was, well, then he's really, really important. They said he was the Messiah. He said that too. They said that he came to seek and save the lost and that his death had opened the doors of heaven to all of us. In terms of how that's significant to our modern world, well, I think it's obvious that a lot of us are currently lost and need saving, myself included and yourself. The world has collectively turned away from God a lot in the last 20 years, and it seems like the dark things that people have always done, but done in private, are now celebrated openly as somehow being brave or edgy or noble. Oh, okay, sure, your self-destructive behavior is art. I believe you. Anyway, to be fair, every generation since Jesus died has probably thought that the world was going completely to hell in a handbasket during their lifetime, and everyone has always thought that the world was better in the previous generations than it is now. Now that implies that things aren't really changing that much, but just seems that they are. I don't know. To me, it does seem like a lot of the dark, unhealthy things that 
are now shown pretty openly in the media online, uh, used to be hidden, now they're celebrated. And the general sense of the world today is just, hey, that's okay, do what you want. But there is still today the same question being asked of us today that was asked of the people just after Jesus died. Jesus' disciple Peter said in his very first sermon that's recorded in the book of Acts, Repent and be saved from this perverse generation. So maybe our generation now isn't any more perverse than Peter's generation 2,000 years ago, but the question to us is still the same. Will we repent from it? Will we repent from that kind of stuff and turn to God? Jesus opened the way to do it, and no one's being forced to turn, but that opportunity is still open. It seems to be, as it was in Peter's day, an act of our own choosing. As Jesus himself said, that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed to all the nations. So we have to choose that repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It seems to be our choice to make, just as it was back in the days just after Jesus' death. Next episode, we're going to look more at the early church and how it's depicted in the Bible and the earliest writings of the church. We're going to look at how the Bible came together and how the followers of Jesus spread throughout the whole Roman Empire, eventually ending up in the palace of Caesar himself. Mm-hmm.